We don't do it anymore. So um, uh, Revelation chapter 21, uh, turning your Bible. So here we are, Revelation 21. Today, it's a new heaven and a new earth. Come on. Yeah, it's... It's only taken us a year to get here, um, but I'm so excited today that we're past all the judgment. Every time we turn a corner, there was like this caveat of judgment, and we finally get to see the final restoration when all things are made new. And so as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking about since we got married, so we've been married, Yvonne and I have been married for 31 years in a couple of weeks. And so, um, yeah, it's been um, a a great ride. We've had some good years and some really bad ones. But uh, man, the last couple of years, specifically the last year, has been exceptional. And uh, I think she would say that too. Uh, You can ask her. Um, So say that, Yvonne. Uh, But since we got married, we've almost always driven used cars. So I don't know if anybody else can relate to that. Um, and, and so we'll always coin the phrase, it's a new to us car, right? So have you ever said that? That you're some other, hey, you're driving a new car and you're like, well, I mean, it's new to us, right? And so here's, here's the definition of a new to us car. Um, uh, you get it, you know, off a lot usually and it's already got some miles on it, right? So there's some miles on this car that, weren't put on it by you, it was put on by the previous owner, and what you don't know is whether they were good miles or hard miles, right? You know the difference between the two? Like my wife puts good miles on a vehicle, I put hard miles on a vehicle, right? And so you don't know if it's good miles or hard miles. Um, The dealer always sprays some fragrance in there that it always smells good as you're driving off the lot, but then after a few days, after the fragrance goes away, what happens? There's some funky smell that you're not sure where it came from. But it's not your, it's not your fault other than the fact that you purchased it. No, you're, you're living in someone else's reality, someone else's smelly funk, right? And then, uh, and then there, there, sometimes there are missing pieces, a little door ding there, a missing piece of plastic somewhere else. And it's just a reminder that this is not completely new. It's new to you, but... It's got some miles on it. But three times in our 31 years, we've bought a new car. And there's nothing like the smell of a new car, right? It just, you get in it, you're like, you just breathe it in. Um, I got a new truck like almost three years ago and my five-year-old granddaughter, Aubrey, she wants to ride in my truck all the time for one reason. She was in it yesterday and she's like, I love the way your truck smells. And somehow it's managed to stay smelling new for three years, right? I'm not sure how um, because I'm in it. Um, but, but every time I grab her and hug her, she says, oh, you smell like your truck. <laughs> so I'm going to always take it as good, right? But, but here's the thing about a brand new car. Uh, now, until I give it away, I know exactly where the miles have gone. Right? If, something's, if something breaks, I know that I broke it. If, if something smells funky, I'll, I'll remember the time that it happened and why it smells the way it does. But here's what I know. There's nothing better than a new car. And so as we think about that, um, whether it's new to you or it's completely new, um, I think we can probably spiritually more identify with the former. Right? We identify with the idea that we're damaged goods. Does anybody ever feel that way? You know, 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it so well, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. And so we can can read that and intellectually we know the old is gone, the new is here. Yeah, that's awesome. Woo! So yesterday um, I was sitting with Yvonne and I just had a really... It's been a hard couple of weeks, but specifically yesterday, um, I just felt like a failure. And uh, just some things were going on that I just began to, as I started thinking, I just felt just, ugh. And I rarely um, talk about that with Yvonne because I feel like I'm supposed to be the, the spiritual leader of the family and keep things optimistic and moving forward and, oh, it's all good, it's all good. Yesterday, I didn't feel that way. In fact, I just felt like, man, I should be further along than I am. I'm not a good son. I'm really not attentive enough as a father. 
as a husband. Have you ever felt that way? That you just feel like you're failing? And, and that's how I felt yesterday. And I, I, just, I just thought, you know, I, I know 2 Corinthians 5.17. I know that I'm a new creation. I know that I've been made new. Intellectually, I could say that all day long, but yesterday I was living in Romans 7. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. I'm such a screw up. Why can't I get this right? And maybe, maybe you feel that way sometimes. I, I certainly did yesterday. And I think about the now and not yet, right? I think about the idea that, man, I've been transformed by the power of Christ. I've been made new. That's the now. But I live in a broken world, right? And there's brokenness around me and there's still temptation and there's still the presence of evil in the world. And so that's the not yet. And so today, we're gonna get a vision uh, of what it looks like when there's no more sin, when there's no more temptation, when there's no more brokenness. And I don't know about you, I'm longing for that because I don't like the way I felt yesterday. And know this, the enemy... You can be completely new in Christ and the enemy will continue to play that tape back. Does everybody know what tape is? He'll, be, he'll, he'll stream that thought in your mind. Hello, 2021, right? He will stream that thought in your mind over and over and over and keep you in this place of feeling broken even when you've been set free. He's the minister of propaganda. He is the old way of thinking. He is Babylon. He's the system that overpromises and underdelivers. And so here's the key point this morning. Restoration is coming. It's coming. There's a day when you'll no longer struggle with that. As a follower of Jesus, if you feel like as a follower of Jesus, you continue to fail, you continue to struggle, there will be a day when that will not be a struggle anymore. That should be like, woo! Like, I can't wait. I can't wait. Because, man, I just tend to beat myself up wishing that I were further along than I am. And I'll be willing to bet that probably most of the room feels that way, struggling with the same things. And so it takes a heavenly perspective, realizing, I mean, this is the basic tenet of our faith, right? It's why you're here this morning, by the way, because you believe with all of your heart, um, yes, heaven can touch earth and snapshots, but there will be a day when I'll no longer struggle because there will be no existence of sin. There will be a day when, when, God will, heaven will touch earth once and for all, no more sin, no more struggle. That's what keeps us going as far as of Jesus. In fact, I cannot even imagine what an agnostic or atheist person, I don't know how they survive because there's no hope in that. I mean, think about the basic tenet that I live, I die, and then I cease to exist. There's no hope in that. This hope is that, listen, there is something on the other side of this life that is life to the full forever. So C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. So we need a new perspective. So let's look at the perspective that John is getting from Jesus. Chapter 21, starting in verse one, it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Okay, so remember last week in Revelation chapter 20, uh, we were, uh, now we were at the throne. Remember the great, the, the great, the great <laughs> marriage. <laughs> That's a Princess Bride reference. Okay, so, sorry, let me slow down. The great white throne judgment. And remember, God is seated on his throne. Philip, stop it. Just let it go. Let it go. Thank you. And it said this. It said that the earth and heaven fled from God's presence. So remember, we said that there are, there are plenty of options for what happened there, but what we really 
felt like we landed on was that God just erased the heaven and the earth, right? So he's taking care of sin. Uh, uh, the, the, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Then Satan is finally thrown into the lake of fire. And now all are standing before the judgment seat of a holy God and heaven and earth now have passed away to make provision for chapter 21. For this vision of a new heaven and a new earth being instituted. And so think about this. Where is he taking us? He's taking us back to the beginning. Genesis chapter one, verse one. The very beginning of the Bible. What does it say? In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. And now in 21, what does he do? He creates a new heaven and a new earth. Remember this, y'all. Revelation is not this outlier book. It is actually the completion of the story of God. Genesis 1.1, he's taking us all the way back to the beginning. How powerful is that language? How powerful is it to think that in the very end, there will be a day when God will institute and create a completely new heaven and a completely new earth. That's pretty cool to think about. And the question is why? Why is he doing it? Well, let's figure that out. Okay, so uh, first of all, it's the language of completion, right? We come full circle. So, you know, in Jesus, we all get a do-over because of the cross. But now when we bring it all to fruition, it's like, okay, here we go. I'm gonna give you a new heaven and a new earth to dwell in, to live in. It's the same language as in Isaiah 65, 17. It says, see, I'll create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Okay, so think about this. The former things in a new heaven and new earth will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. What does that say to you? What it says to you is that, God, when he forgave your sin through Jesus on the cross, it says that your sin, Psalm 103, has been cast as far as the east is from the west. That God remembers your sin no more. There is not an asterisk by your name in the book of life. It's not, hey, Torres, man, you have been saved by grace, but... That's, that's not, that is not how God views you. He remembers your sin no more. But guess what? You hold your sin against yourself every day. What would it be like to get in this new heaven and new earth and you no longer remember your sin? You no longer remember your past. You're no longer broken anymore. What would that be like? That would be the definition of peace. It would be the definition of freedom. Again, that's why we're living in this tension of the now and not yet because today, intellectually, I think everyone who follows Jesus would say, I've been set free, right? And yet, we still live as a broken person. The not yet of of recognizing that, man, sin continually is nipping at my heels. I'm continually giving in to the same things over and over again. And man, I want to cling to verse 17 of Isaiah 65. Man, I want to be excited that there will actually be a day when I won't think about my sin anymore. I won't think about my feeling anymore. I won't think about the the ways that I've uh, hurt people, the relationships that I've destroyed. No. I'll get to live in a new way once and for all where my sin, I am no longer holding myself captive. I'm no longer allowing the enemy to speak what is a lie over my life. New heaven and a new earth. Second Peter 3.13, Peter said it really well, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. But in keeping with his promise, God has promised this. He has promised a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. What does it look like 
to live in a place where righteousness dwells. Maybe, maybe in your world right now, when you think about your home, maybe the last thing that you think about is righteousness. Maybe there's some things that you've allowed yourself, you and your spouse, your family to become kind of captive to or addicted to that really is not a place where righteousness dwells. And know this, man, we, we all allow things into our lives, sometimes unwittingly, sometimes we do it on purpose because we think, man, this is what is gonna bring me life. And the hard reality is we succumb to these things and then we wonder why we don't feel the presence of God. Well, take heart because when the new heaven and new earth comes, it will be the place where righteousness dwells. Okay, look at verse two. It says, I, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Okay, so we see the same wedding analogy. If you remember back in chapter 19, there was the marriage supper of the lamb. And remember, God loves to seat us around tables and celebrate because of what comes next. Because what always comes next is victory. And here we see the, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending from heaven. And it's this whole idea of this beautiful bride walking down the aisle, the picture of beauty, of purity, of perfection. So this is evidence of a completed story. Right? So if you were a Jew and you were hearing this for the first time, man, uh, Jerusalem was like the center of your universe. Right? They would wander, but they would always end up back in this place and they were always uh, seeking the restoration of Jerusalem because when Jerusalem was good, their, their, their whole system was good. But as they were reading this, this was written in the mid-90s AD. In 70 AD, Rome overran Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And so for them, as they're reading this, once again, they're in this place of, of just longing for the day when Jerusalem would be restored. And so this whole idea of John seeing this vision of Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem descending it, again, is this beautiful picture of the gospel. And what does that mean? It means that the story of the gospel is when you couldn't ascend, God descended. He descended in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. Uh, John 1.14 it says that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Jesus is God wrapped in flesh and he, he descended once. So in his first coming, he descended to show us the way to live in the kingdom of God. And then he bled and died for all sin, past, present, and future. John 1.12 says that anyone who receives him, he gives the right to be called a child of God. So that's good news. But now in his second coming, he institutes not just a new heaven and a new earth, but now here he comes again, descending, descending on earth. So think about it. When you think about heaven, so we've all heard a lot of things about heaven, right? First, we've heard about the pearly gates, right? And so who's standing at the pearly gates? Peter in every joke, right? And so, so there's Peter standing at the holy gates and the pearly gates. And for a lot of you, uh, you're hoping that your name is on there, but he's like, hey, just stand up here against the gate. You just barely got in, right? And, and so for a lot of us, so we think about the pearly gates, uh, the streets of gold. We'll, we'll, we'll read that in the passage this next week, the imagery that is heaven, but we always think of heaven as up there, Right? When I die, I'm going up there. Christ ascended into heaven. And so we think about that Christ is up there and we're going up there wherever up there is. Okay, not bad, not a bad thought. Then we start hearing about, oh yeah, all of your favorite things will be in heaven. You know, it's like a buffet of fajitas that goes on forever, <laughs> right? Just eat till you're dizzy, it's good. You'll never get full and you'll just keep eating, right? 
Have you ever heard that? That whatever, whatever your greatest thing you desire, you get in heaven, right? Not sure where it says that in scripture, but okay, we'll go with that. And then you're gonna see your grandmother. My mom died in 2009, and so um, I'm thinking, oh man, when I get to heaven, she's gonna be running toward me, oh, you know, and, and, and maybe, but is that really the point? First of all, we're reading here, heaven's not up there, that when the new heavens and new earth are formed, that heaven actually descends to earth. So we don't gotta go anywhere. It's actually here, but it's new, and it's fresh, and know this, the thing on your mind will not be fajitas or seeing your loved ones who passed away. Your whole focus will be Jesus Christ. That when the new heavens and the new earth descends, when, when the throne of God descends among his people, you'll just be focused on that. I remember we were introduced to the throne in, in uh, John chapter, or, uh, uh, Revelation chapter four. Jesus told John, hey, come up here. And now he's in the throne room of God and we see this beautiful picture of worship. Well, now that throne room has now descended onto earth, accessible. And it's said that now God will make his dwelling among his people. In the first coming, he did it through Jesus. In the second coming, he's just coming with all that he is. And remember the Old Testament, they built a tabernacle, which was this place to go and meet and experience the presence of God. And Moses would go in there and he'd have to wear a veil because it, the Shekinah glory, it, the, the glory of God was just so thick that people couldn't look at his face. And so he'd have to wear a veil to cover it up. And that's where we're gonna live that no longer do we gotta veil our faces, no longer do we gotta worry about the person next to us. In fact, we'll see in chapter 22 that it says that the glory of God will shine so brightly that we don't need the sun or moon anymore. That his glory is what brightens our day. How cool is that? I mean, come on, y'all. This is the not yet. This is what's coming. This is what we are living for. The new heaven and the new earth. such a beautiful picture of restoration. Okay, verse four. I'm sorry, verse three. And I heard a loud voice saying from the throne, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. I got ahead of myself a little bit. I mean, this is God. God saying, listen, I am going to dwell among you. Again, the first coming, he dwelt among us in Jesus. And now he's just coming in his fullness. Father, son, and spirit are setting up shop in the new Jerusalem. And we just get to experience it day and night, night and day for all of eternity. Now remember in Genesis, it says that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. What would it be like for God now to walk among us and for us to just be hanging with the Father for all of eternity? Verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So this is a direct quote from Isaiah 25. Again, so much Old Testament reference. But look, it says, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And in that day, they will say, that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him as he has saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad of this salvation. Notice, this was written pre-Jesus. How much more do we understand? salvation today. The Jews, the, the, the Jews were, were, were wanting physical salvation from, their, from the curse of sin. I mean, we got so much more to be excited about. But here's one of the big problems. Again, we said it a lot lately, but most of us are uh, New Testament Christians, meaning that we don't connect to the bigger story. 
We've got to be reminded that the book of Revelation is completing a story that started in Genesis 1-1. And everything that happened, remember, you as a Gentile, if you are not Jewish by heritage, you through Jesus have been grafted into the family of God. You are adopted sons and daughters. And so many times we get adopted, um, we work a lot with foster and adopted kids, And I think it'd be easy to go, yeah, well, your past doesn't matter anymore. You're a part of my family. But that's not what actually happens. All of us, we've we've got to connect to our Jewishness as followers of Jesus. And there's a bigger narrative than just, hey, I was a sinner, now I'm not. I trust Jesus. And, And we don't understand the grander narrative of the Bible. The story of the Jews, they're wandering. It's your story and my story. We can't forget that. But here's what's cool. And when the new heavens and new earth are established, when the new Jerusalem comes, what does it say? No more crying. Hold my call. Um, uh, No more crying. No more death. No more pain. Every tear is wiped away. Think about that. No more sickness, no more cancer, no more divorce, no more addictions. I mean, just think about what is that going to be like when we got nothing to cry about? You know, he made specific promises to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Um, He promised for those who follow him, who are faithful to the end, They get access to the tree of life. They're not hurt by the second death. To another, they get the victor's crown. To another, they get hidden manna, a new name. To another, authority over the nations and the morning star. To another, white garments and their name in the book of life. Another, to be a pillar in the temple of God. To another, they get to sit on the throne of God with him. The absence of suffering, that would have played well to the readers when this was written. And again, we don't fully understand it. I bet Afghan followers of Jesus fully understand this today. As their country has been overtaken by those who want them dead, how they're living in, in some sort of hiding, knowing that if they proclaim Jesus, it's gonna cost them their life. Man, we're so kind of immune from that. It just doesn't really uh, translate to Americans today. But here's what Jesus is telling John in this moment. This vision is this. Your suffering has not been in vain. I will vindicate you and you will no longer have any of the pain that you're experiencing. So that's hard for us to grasp, but let me, let me bring it here for you. Think for just a second about your deepest pain. The biggest hurt in your life. Maybe it's a divorce. The death of someone close to you that you just can't seem to get over, get past. Losing a job and living for months and months unemployed and the hit that takes to your fragile psyche. Uh, Being the victim of extreme emotional or physical abuse and you can't see a pathway to healing. Being a slave to addiction that you've prayed and begged God to take that desire from you and you continue to struggle. He's saying, listen, there will be a day when all that will be gone. And so as followers of Jesus, we get the opportunity to not live here, but live Colossians 3. It says, hey, listen, set your heart on things above. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's an invitation to not think here. You get a choice. You can live uh, depending on an earthly perspective, which we would, the, the summary word of that would be happiness what you think you deserve. And the reason so many of us are miserable is because we're taking our identity right here 
We're taking our identity to Babylon. Babylon overpromises and underdelivers. And it's, it, man, we may be happy for a moment because that's what's promised from the world, right? We're promised from the world that this will bring you happiness. That case of beer will bring you happiness. That sexual experience will bring you happiness. Those five fantasy football leagues that you're in will bring you happiness. I mean, seriously, think about it. I mean, we're, we're, we're convinced all the time. We're, we're constantly medicating, trying to find happiness. And it just doesn't, it never gets there. Why? Because that's what the enemy, the system of Babylon is trying to convince you that you just continue to fill yourself with stuff and you continue to just get emptier and emptier and emptier. And it just heaps more shame, more brokenness, more anxiety. That's why we're the most medicated nation on the planet, y'all. There is a deep sense of hopelessness that comes when we just don't think there's anything on the other side. And listen, I'm not anti-medication. God uses it all the time. But you know, medication often just masks what's going on really deep down within. And what we need is radical heart transformation. And when we have no hope, it makes the heart sick. What would it be like? No more pain, hurting sorrow. I mean, how cool would that be? How cool would that be if you didn't feel that way anymore? He says here that the old order of things will pass away. What does that mean? It means that when the world died, the old order of things went with it. I mean, remember just a couple chapters ago, Babylon was cast into the heart of the sea, meaning its system went away, that, that it is sin and evil that is what drives the old way of thinking. And when it's finally extinguished, the old order of things, it's gone, it's done. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Again, it's a picture of completion. Philippians 1.6 it says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to what? Complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the day of Christ Jesus, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. That is the day of Christ Jesus. And guess what? Until then, we're working toward completion. It's the now and not yet. We are, we, we are saved by grace and we are on a journey with Jesus, but there will be a day when we will be complete. We'll be completely complete. Is that even possible? Is that a phrase? Being completely complete? It's the now and not yet. James 1, 2 through 4. I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, and uh, that's not it. Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters. When, when you encounter trials of various kinds, for the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance must have its perfect work so that you may be what? Mature and complete. Lacking in nothing. God's goal for you is always completeness. And it's the now and not yet. We will not be complete this side of heaven. But we get these snapshots when heaven touches earth and it, it spurs us on because we know that restoration is coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's a hope that we have. Verse five, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write these down for these words are trustworthy and true. He says it, I am making all things new. God on his throne says to John, see, I'm making all things new. Again, it's the story of the gospel when you couldn't ascend to God, which by the way, that's religion. Religion tells us, man, the building blocks of ascending to God are being good enough, right? So every good work you do, you're, you're building a tower to God. And remember how that worked in Genesis chapter 11, the tower of Babel? 
Men trying to work their way to God for their fame and for their glory so that they could be good enough. And know this, you'll never be able to ascend to God. And that's why he descended. And he says, listen, I'm making all things new. You could never make yourself new. And that's why you're so frustrated in your life. For some of you this morning, you've trusted Jesus for salvation, but you're living in the system of Babylon. You're trusting in the culture to try to make you new, to try to make you feel better about yourself. And then you're wondering why you keep failing over and over again. Because it doesn't work. And we've got to recognize that he says, listen, I'm making all things new. In his first coming, he came to give us a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17, again, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old is gone, new has come. Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ. Now it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. So think about that, that, that when you said yes to Jesus, you're dying to yourself and, a living, and, and allowing the power of a living God to come take up residence in you. That's cool. And to the extent that you give yourself over to him, that process is a thing called holiness. You're becoming more like Jesus. And it's a journey. For some, it's two steps forward and one step back. For some, it's one step forward and three steps back. But the the whole journey is, man, I just want to be more like Jesus. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. You can't make yourself new. But Christ in you can In the first coming, he came to change your heart. In the second coming, he will literally change the atmosphere. He's gonna clean up the environment. That's what he does. No more sin. And then I love what he says. Write it down and take it to the bank. A promise made is a promise kept. So he says, hey, listen, I'm gonna make all things new. Write it down. It's a trustworthy statement. Here's the thing, if God says it, I'm gonna go and write it down. I'm gonna go and count it as true. I don't know when it's gonna happen, but that's not up to me to decide. I'm not God. What I can do is walk with the anticipation that there's something he's doing, that he's gonna make all things new in his time. A promise made is a promise kept by God. Verse six, he said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Okay, the first thing he said is, it is done. Have we heard that before anywhere? John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus is hanging on the cross and the last thing he says before he dies is what? It is finished. And so now, Father God, here in the new Jerusalem, sitting on his throne, looks and says, hey, guess what? It's done. The Father and Son speak the same language. And again, Jesus came to conquer death, sin, and hell. And now God is making all things new. And what he says here in this vision is, hey, it's done. By the way, I'm the alpha, the beginning, and I'm the omega, the end. That means that at the beginning, before Genesis 1-1, I was, and after Revelation 22, I will always be. I am constant. You are this. I am this. You're all over the map. Is that true or false? It's true. Your, your spouse may tell you you're steady, but I know me and you know you. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. From creation one to creation two, he's still the same God. That's so good. And this is a bold proclamation for you today. Whatever you're going through, it's finished. Remember, we said that when the voice of God speaks, the earth melts. That when, when, when the breath of God goes forward, all conflict ceases. And know this, when God speaks into your life, peace comes. And so if you don't feel peace, you've not allowed the voice of God to speak into your life. Because when the voice of God speaks, conflict ends. 
Receive that as proclamation over your life. It's done. If you can receive that today, if you can receive that whatever you're struggling with, it's done and begin to claim the authority of Jesus over your life, you're gonna begin to walk in a new way. It doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean that there aren't gonna be uh, temptations because the world's still broken. It's the now and not yet. But imagine how much better it would be for you if you stop trying to fix yourself. When God says, listen, it's done. You don't have to live like that anymore. I wanna give you hope. And then he says, to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Okay, so this is cool. Remember John chapter four, when Jesus has an encounter with the woman at the well? It starts out in chapter four that it says that, that he was on his way um, he was on his way to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. And if you blink, you miss it. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Because he had an appointment with a woman at a well in the heat of the day. The disciples didn't know it. They went on into town and Jesus is sitting there. A woman comes up and he says, hey, uh, draw me some water. She's like, uh, do you even know who you're talking to? And he said, actually, if you knew who I was and the water that I offered, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And he starts this conversation with her and, and it's just, it, it turns into this religious posturing back and forth. But here's the bottom line. When he tells her everything about her life, you know what he does? He pours living water into her and she is transformed to the point that she runs back to the village. Everyone has ostracized her. He goes, hey, listen, this dude told me everything about my life. They could see transformation in her. And here's how I know that. The entire village came out to the well that day and that whole village was transformed. That's living water. And that's what Jesus offers to the thirsty. If you are thirsty, I will give you a drink. And it's living water. He talked about it in John chapter seven, in verse 37 and 38. It says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, listen, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow where? From within them. That's powerful. It means that you drink in the living water of Jesus and it fills you up and it overflows out of your life into the world around you. There's this imagery in Ezekiel 47 of this river flowing out of the temple and it starts out ankle deep and then knee deep and then waist high and then it just overflows. And it's this beautiful picture of when Jesus fills you up, it overflows, it's so overwhelming to you that it spills into the world around you. And listen, if we are truly, if we truly believe we're living in the now and not yet, it means that when Jesus comes in your life and you receive and you receive and you receive and you receive in the secret place every day, you are so overflowing and overwhelmed with this living water that it begins to flow out of you. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So now that living water is flowing out of the temple of God. That's you. And you are God's plan to change the world. So he says, listen, if you're thirsty, I'm gonna give you living water. But know this, it's not just living water for you. It's living water for the world around you. We are a part of God's plan to change the world. And we receive so that we can give. But it's really interesting and Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13. It talks about this whole idea. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Is that not a picture of you and me? That Jesus is constantly offering the living water. And a lot of us, we drink enough of it to get us into heaven when we die. And then we're digging our own wells and these broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We're trusting Jesus for eternity when we die and the system of Babylon to sustain us while we're here. It doesn't work. 
It does not work. Okay, so he ends, and this is where we're going to end. Verse 7 and 8 says, those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexual, immoral, those who practice the magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And so he contrasts these two worlds. He's like, hey, listen, this is what's available to you. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, my presence will be with you. I'm going to give you this living water to drink. It's all right here in front of you. This is what I'm offering you. But know this, if you reject me, this is what's in store for you. Again, we said it last week, but, but if God has made himself known, and I hear all the time, well, why would a loving God send people to hell? Well, he's given us a book that has stood the test of time. So for more than 2,000 years now, this book uh, was written and people are reading it all over the planet. And so uh, does God send people to hell or the one who rejects him? I mean, this is just how it is. So let me bring this in for a landing. So what what does it look like to live with a heavenly perspective? What does it look like to to set your mind and your hearts not here but here? There are three things that I want you to think about. And here's number one. As followers of Jesus... We live in the now and not yet. We live in the now and not yet. We're living under the covenant of his first coming and the hope of his second coming. So if you're living as a follower of Jesus with no hope, you've completely missed the point. And I hope this morning, this kind of restores some hope in you that you recognize that, hey, listen, I'm following Jesus and it's hard because Jesus, uh, Tanner said it during the prayer, John 16. He says, hey, in this life you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. That, that following Jesus doesn't mean the absence of trouble. It doesn't mean the absence of suffering. The entire Bible was written in the context of suffering. Life's hard. And without Jesus, it's impossible. And so we trust Jesus now and live in the hope of this momentary suffering is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed. Good is coming. A day when all will be made new, no more tears, sorrow, pain, death. It's coming, y'all. That's what we long for. Number two, only Jesus can quench your thirst once and for all. Only Jesus. Nothing else satisfies. The enemy convinces you every day of what you think is gonna bring you life. And the only thing that I would ask is, how is that working for you? (laughs) How's it working for you? Because I'll guarantee you, when you lay your head on your pillow at night, You've got anxious thoughts that keep you awake. You've got guilt, shame, fear of the future. I mean, it's all right there. And without Jesus, seriously, it's impossible. He is the only one, the only thing. He is logos, the word, that thing that makes life make sense. He's the only one that can put it all together for you. And the contrast of the two worldviews cannot be more different. Know that if you are trusting Babylon, trusting the system of the world to bring you life, you're always gonna be thirsty. I mean, the most interesting man in the world says, stay thirsty, my friend, right? He knows you're never gonna find it. (laughs) Only Jesus can satisfy. And I love that Jesus said in Matthew 5, to say, listen, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because it's those who will be filled. I think about those even today, desperation has driven you to be thirsty, right? You're in a place 
where you are desperate. And you know what? There's no bad reason to have a hunger and thirst. But, but what Jesus wants is in that moment, he wants to create even more of a hunger and thirst. As you know a little bit more of him, it's uh, what Peter says, man, taste and see that the Lord is good. Once you taste of his goodness, you'll want more and more and more. And then finally, an eternal perspective makes life worth living. If you're just living to fight another day, you're losing, I'll guarantee it. If you're looking here to try to find the answers to life, you're losing. You may have momentary spikes, you know, the, the, the system of the culture, if we could sum it up in one word, happiness. If you're just living for happiness, yeah, you get it in the moment and then it's gone and then you want it again, but you need it bumped up a little more and you become a thrill seeker because the, the last thrill wasn't enough. And so you're just bumping up and bumping up and bumping up. It sounds like an addict, doesn't it? And maybe you're a happiness addict that you need something more to, to fill you up, but that's you looking here. And know that you'll always come up against an emptiness that can only be filled by Jesus. Look up. Look up. Colossians 3.1. It says it. It says, listen, set your minds on things above. Set your heart on things above. It's the eternal perspective. We live in the now and the not yet. And the way that we exist in the now is we have hope in the not yet. And that hope is what keeps us going. And so Jesus, I pray this morning as we look at this passage, you would just remind us that there's a day coming, a new heaven, a new earth, a, a new Jerusalem. Your dwelling will come once and for all and uh, we will be your people, you will be our God. For all who have said yes to you, for all who remain faithful to the end, what is in store for us is drinking from this living water and will never be thirsty again. God, I pray for the person this morning who's a slave to a system that just keeps bringing them death over and over again. They just keep coming up short. Even for the religious person who's just trying harder and harder and it doesn't seem to work. I pray today that something would shift, that we would no longer live for momentary happiness. We would embrace you, Jesus, the hope of something so much bigger, the hope of something eternal. And if that's you this morning, uh, maybe